Hey, thanks for listening to Cornerstone Church. You can find us on the web at akcornerstone.org. And we want you to know it's our prayer that the Holy Spirit will use this message to either save you through the good news about Jesus Christ, grow you into the likeness of Jesus, or send you to proclaim Jesus in the Spirit's power. You know, there's a couple of great stories in the Word. I'll give you a paint a picture here. Story of Daniel being thrown into what? The lion's den. Not a very fun place to be thrown. How about Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego? Where were they thrown into? Fiery furnace. I feel like this morning I've got one up on Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego because they were thrown into the fiery furnace and I am choosing to just by my own volition leap into the fiery furnace because I'm going to preach this morning on what is, in my opinion, the hardest verse in all of the Bible. So open to Romans chapter 9, please. Romans chapter 9. Here's a good thing that is similar between those stories and mine, though. Daniel was not alone in the lion's den, was he? Nope, there was an angel of the Lord there that shut the lion's mouths and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when the king had thrown them into that furnace so hot that those that cast them in were consumed He threw three in there and he looked down and he saw how many? He saw four, one like the son of the gods walking around in the fire. The point being is this, though I'm leaping into the lion's den or into the furnace, uh, I'm fully confident because I believe that what I'm sharing is the truth of the word of God and it's always good to stand with God regardless of what the circumstances are. So Romans chapter 9 Romans chapter 9, just a few statements, uh, just to remind you of verses 6 to 12 as a setup. Paul has been teaching about God's free and unconditional election, that God chooses people before the foundation of the world throughout all of eternity past and the counsel of his own sovereign will that he freely chooses those he will save. Freely meaning it is simply something that he does in himself. Nothing external influencing that. And the other side of that coin is that it's unconditional upon those that he chooses. In other words, it's not something that they do that causes him to choose them. And it's not something that he saw that they would do in the future that causes him to choose them. He chooses them simply because he's the God that has the right to do that. And everything that he does, he does with full omniscience, complete understanding, that he does with full power, complete ability, and he does with full goodness so that everything that he does is always the right thing. So Paul has been teaching about this free and unconditional election of God unto salvation, and he uses a couple of illustrations, Abraham's children, Ishmael and Isaac. God chose one and not the other, and then he used... Isaac's children, Jacob and Esau, children who were in the womb at the same time, twins, and God chose Jacob and not Esau. So he's been 
teaching and reiterating that fact. And then he comes to Romans chapter 9, verse 13, and he writes what I believe is the hardest verse in the Bible, and that is this. Speaking of God, referring to a statement out of the Old Testament, as it is written, God says, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. God says, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So, you can see why it's me standing on the precipice here, leaping into the fire. So let's just try, first of all, to get an understanding of this word hate in the Greek here. Is it literally saying, as we understand that in our humanity, that God hated Esau? Well, I would just say to you, first of all, that it's pretty tough to get a full grasp of that because God is not like us, right? When we hate, it would be a selfish, self-centered reality. It would be sinful, not so in God. It clearly says in many places in Scripture that God hates sin. But what I want to do is I want to take a wide-angle view, first of all, And ask this question, is there anywhere else in Scripture where this word is used for hatred in the Greek here that will help us to get an understanding of what Paul is saying here? And there are more than one. We're going to look at one, Luke chapter 14, verse 26. Jesus made some statements using this word. Listen to the statement. Jesus said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Same word here as in Romans 9.13 for hate in the Greek. So the question is this, is Jesus literally saying that as followers of Christ, those who are saved, that they're supposed to literally hate their father and their mother and their children and their wife and their spouse? No, he's not saying that. We know that he's not saying that. The context here is one of comparison. It's talking about a priority. It's talking about a priority. He's making the Emphasis that if you're a follower of Christ and anything would try to come in and disrupt that, to break that up, that your highest priority, your greatest love is to be Jesus Christ. He is the one that deserves the top place of honor, your top love. So in that sense, in a comparative statement, we are to hate anything that would try to come in between us and Christ, anything that would try to get us to take Christ off of the throne of our lives. So with that in mind, same Greek word, theologians would try to communicate this idea like this, that it is a statement about God loving less, that word hate. It's about God 
determining that he's going to set his favor on as opposed to not setting his favor on. It's an attitude about the relationship between a person and God. So when he says, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated, the idea is that God is lavishing his favor upon Jacob and not upon Esau. So what that does, maybe just mildly at least, helps to take a little bite off of that you know, the sharpness, the teeth of the word hate. But what I want to see, I don't want to go too far with that. What I do want you to see is that there is a radical distinction between Jacob and Esau. Remember, in the womb, twins in the womb at the same time, before they were born, the statement is made to the The truth of what he's saying here is that God did choose Jacob and he didn't choose Esau. He did bless Jacob. He didn't bless Esau. God did, with his mercy, pursue Jacob. If you read the story, you'll see this in the Old Testament. God's mercy dogged Jacob all the days of his life. Would not let him go. God's mercy did not do that to Esau. Clearly a distinction between the two. Here's the point. point that Paul's been making over and over again. The point is that God's election, God's choice of some and not others is a biblical fact. It's a biblical fact. Now, we've looked at that a few weeks here from Romans 9. I know this is such a difficult doctrine to try to sort out in our minds, in our hearts. And so I want to be really patient with that. I'm going to take a few minutes again right here this morning and I'm going to just show you outside of Romans 9, I'm going to show you that God's election, His free and unconditional election is a fact, a biblical fact. I'm going to give you three scriptures. And the first scripture, I want you to ask this question as you hear it. Why is it that some, when they hear the preaching of the gospel, believe? What is it that makes that happen in some? At some point in their life, some believe when they hear the preaching of the gospel. And what we have here in Acts chapter 13 is Luke is writing about Paul preaching in Antioch. And he's going to answer the question, what it is that caused some there in Antioch to believe when Paul preached. Acts 13, 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, Paul's message, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. Listen. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Listen to that last statement again. And as many as were appointed to eternal life did what? They believed. Do you see how that's not the opposite direction? It doesn't say, and as many as believed were appointed to eternal life. No, it said that the appointment is what brought about the belief. And as many as believed No, as many as were appointed 
to eternal life. They are the ones that believed. So what Luke is saying is that when Paul preached in Antioch and he shared the gospel of Jesus Christ, there were some in Antioch that that gospel went out and it grabbed them and they believed and were saved. And why did they believe? Because they were appointed unto eternal life. Now let's look at the other side of the coin. Why is it that some do not believe? John chapter 10. Jesus will answer this question. John chapter 10 verse 26. Jesus said, But you do not believe because, here's the reason, because you are not among my sheep. You see, this is the same idea on the opposite side of the spectrum here. Jesus is saying, the reason that you don't put your faith in me is because you're not one of my sheep. So what comes first? The fact or not whether you're one of his sheep. And if you are, you believe. If you're not, Jesus said, you don't believe. So it's the same thing here. This is the election. If We are one of his sheep. If we're one of the elect, we're going to believe. If we don't, the reason is because we're not one of his sheep. So the point is this. Believing, believing doesn't make you a sheep. If you're a sheep, that's what enables you to believe. Now listen, one more verse. Again, we're establishing the biblical fact of election. Listen to how Peter tells us how we should view our belief and obedience, this walk, the things that we do after we are saved, how we should view that. Should we view it as the thing that saves us? Listen, 2 Peter 1.10, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Confirm your calling and election. Peter did not say, be all the more diligent to make sure that you get called and elected. No, he said, when you do the right things, when you believe and obey, what you're doing is you're not securing your calling and election. You're confirming what is already a fact. It's a confirmation so that when a person puts their faith in Jesus and when they begin to walk a life of obedience, we can say, aha, there's the confirmation that they're elect, that they've been called. You see, always, consistently in Scripture, when these are put together, it's that the call, the election comes first, and that's what enables the belief unto salvation. It's never the other way around. Belief doesn't get you elected. You believe because you are elected. Election is a biblical fact. So that's primary. That's that's the main foundation upon which we can stand there. But I just want to ask you a question then related to not only a biblical fact, but a visible fact. Just of life in general around you. Again, this is secondary, not primary, because Scripture always needs to remain primary. But in a secondary way, 
Can we look at life and say, wow, you know, there's things in life that would validate that. I mean, I can see that in life. So let me just ask you this. When you look around at different individuals, would you say that God treats everybody the same? I mean, does God treat everybody the same? I would submit to you, there is no way that he does. Just think about what you see. Think about who you are and who other people are. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, considered probably the greatest preacher last century, said this, last several hundred years, said this, God has made some eagles and some worms. God has made some lions and some creeping lizards. God has made some kings and some beggars. I mean, that's true in life, right? We look out and we see that. That's all over. Just take it to my own personal life. You see, that is not only true in stations in life, but it is also true about religious things. For example, my life. God has given me more opportunities than he has given a great number of other people. God has given me opportunities to hear his word that he hasn't given to other people. God gave me the opportunity to be raised up in a Christian home where Jesus was proclaimed to me, where I was taught about the life of Christ, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, and what that means for my salvation, and how he did that willingly, and I need to put my faith in him to be saved. I was taught that. There are many that aren't taught that growing up. Many of you in this room were not taught that. You see, God didn't treat us the same. Some are given many more advantages than others. We can see that around us. And it lines up with the truth that we see as a biblical fact in Scripture. Election, God chooses some and not others. The fact is, God loved Jacob and hated Esau. The fact is, God set his favor on Jacob and he didn't on Esau. Read the story. The fact is, his mercy dogged Jacob his entire life and it didn't dog Esau. That's the fact. You see, the doctrine of Jacob is the doctrine of election. The doctrine of Esau is the doctrine of reprobation. Election, Jacob, reprobation, Esau. And the strongest verse in all the Bible, in addition to many others, but the strongest, hardest verse in the Bible related to that is Romans chapter 9, verse 13. Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. So here's a question then. Just to get that fact established in Scripture, we need to ask a critical question now. The question has to do with this. Are election and reprobation identical in opposites? 
meaning. Does God elect in the same way or is reprobation carried out in the same way that election is? Let me even say that clearer. Does God choose those who will be reprobate, who will be condemned to hell, in the same way that He chooses those He will save for heaven? That's the heart of the question right there. We need to answer that question because that's a critical question. And the answer is absolutely not. Absolutely not. Let me show you that from Scripture. Question, how does God save the elect? Freely and unconditionally. Freely in of himself alone and unconditionally, not because of anything that the individual does. Is that the way that God condemns the reprobate? Freely, simply just a decision that he makes, and unconditionally, not because of anything that they do? Absolutely not. That is not the story of Scripture at all. You see, it is injustice that God condemns the reprobate. It is in grace that he chooses the elect. You see, God's part in condemnation is not God just saying, I'm condemning you, I'm condemning you, I'm condemning you. God does not do that. God in condemnation is like a judge in a courtroom. And what does a judge in a courtroom do? A judge in a courtroom hears the facts, he knows the case, he knows the individual that is charged, and if that individual is found guilty, the judge levies the law against that individual and sentences him. Is the judge responsible for the crime the criminal committed? No. The judge is simply carrying out the demands of the law. It's the same way with reprobation between us and God. If we are condemned, it's not because God chose that we would be condemned. It's because we chose to do what condemns us. And we are guilty as charged. Justly guilty as charged. I'm going to show you how Scripture bears that out. Romans chapter 9, 22 and 23. Romans 9, 22 and 23. What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make His known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy, which He has prepared beforehand for glory. I want you to look really closely at these two verses. First verse is talking about those who have been, who are vessels of wrath. And look specifically what it says about them. It says that they were prepared for destruction. That's the direct quote, that they were prepared for destruction. Now I want you to look at the second verse and notice how the wording is different related to the vessels of mercy. 
It says that the vessels of mercy, comma, which He, God, has prepared beforehand for glory. Do you see the difference in the vessels of wrath? It doesn't explicitly say God prepared them beforehand for glory. But when it talks about the vessels of mercy, it says explicitly, directly, that it was God that prepared them beforehand for glory. You see, I think what this, Paul is doing there is he's helping us to see that mercy and grace is all of God. He does it. He prepares us for it. But if we are condemned and sent to hell, it's because we prepared ourselves for it. He didn't prepare us for it. Let me show you another verse to back that up. Matthew chapter 25, verse 34. Here is a picture of the last great day. And Jesus, on that final day, gathers all of humanity before Him and He separates humanity into two groups, one on His right and one on His left, the sheep and the goats, the saved and the unsaved. Listen to what it says in Matthew chapter 5, verse, Matthew 25, verse 34. These are to those on the right. Now listen really carefully to the language. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father. Secondly, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Two things to bring out. The ones on his right, they were blessed by Jesus' Father. And secondly, the kingdom was prepared for them. You see those direct statements about God's direct involvement that He is blessing them and preparing a kingdom for them. Now go to the ones on the left and watch the different language. Matthew chapter 25 verse 41. Those that are unsaved will say, then He will say to those on His left, depart from Me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Do you see what he does here? He does the same thing. He just says, depart from me, you cursed. He doesn't say, depart from you, those cursed by my father. He says, depart from me, you cursed. And then the second part, depart where? Depart into eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. God didn't even prepare it for those that are reprobate and condemned. He prepared it for the devil and his angels and what we do by our sin, by our choices, by rebelling against God, we condemn ourselves. God does not condemn us. We condemn ourselves. He is simply the judge that hands out the sentence based upon the facts of the case of our own activity, our own rebellion. So do you see how Scripture so carefully guards this not conflicting idea, but it's like a paradox. And it's this. For salvation, glory to God. For condemnation, blame to man. For salvation, God gets all the glory. For condemnation, man gets all the blame. That is the consistent message of Scripture. Meaning, no one is going to be in hell and say, God, I didn't deserve to be here. No one. No one is going to be there and say, 
or no one is going to be there and not understand that what they did landed them there, their own choices, their own decisions. So the Word of God is really consistent. Let me just deal with me two more items here. Maybe somewhat struggles or objections to election that I'm hoping will help you. You see, there are those that really fear the doctrine of election, and I understand that. They used to fear the doctrine of election. And they fear it because what they see in it is that it is a doctrine that determines or identifies those who are excluded. And that is not what the doctrine of election is. The doctrine of election is about those who are included and chosen. But instead, they look at it in the wrong direction and they see it as a doctrine that is identifying those who are accursed and cut off and outside from Christ and bound for hell. And that is not the doctrine of election. In fact, if you think through this, I think this will make profound sense. The very nature of election proves that that is false. The very nature of election proves that it is not something that is to be looked at to determine who is excluded. Now let me explain that. What is the doctrine of election? It is a doctrine that God freely in himself alone, and unconditionally, not because of the individual, chooses from eternity past, elects from eternity past. So how could that be an exclusionary doctrine? Now let me just paint a scenario for you. Maybe one that we are aware of. I'm just going to kind of do a little role play here. I want you to picture the thief hanging on the cross. And the thief on the cross says to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says to the thief, and he does say this, I tell you the truth, today you're going to be with me in paradise. Now, let me just color that scene Let's say there was a little more dialogue and I'll bring out this truth that I'm talking about. What if the thief said, well, wait a minute. How can I know that for sure? I mean, how can I know? Because election is conditional, not unconditional. 
How could I? I've lived an entire life of sin. I haven't been righteous one bit. I am a moment away from stepping into eternity. How in the world can I know that when I step over Jesus, I'm not going right to hell? And imagine Jesus saying, here's how you can know. Because election is free and unconditional. Meaning, nothing that you ever have done can keep you out from being elect if you're one. Because it's not contingent upon that at all. It's not contingent upon what you do at all. It's all in God. And so the thief could say, oh, hallelujah, I know that I am Freely and unconditionally saved because it doesn't depend upon me in any measure. It depends only on Him so I can with confidence take the last step from this life into eternity knowing that I'm going to be saved. See, the doctrine of election is not a doctrine of exclusion. It's a doctrine of inclusion. It's a doctrine. It's a powerful, encouraging, peace-giving doctrine. But you see, if election wasn't free and unconditional. I mean, you know election is true because it's all over in the Bible. But if it was, if you defined it as being conditional and not unconditional, not only in God himself, then how could you know? How could you know that you are going to be saved? Because if it's anything dependent upon you, how good are you really? How good are you? You see, there's another aspect to this that people struggle with, kind of a partner to what we just talked about. And the aspect is free will. Free will. And it goes something like this. Maybe I could put it as an as a kind of state the opposite case here. Those that struggle with the doctrine of election say, "Well, I mean, God doesn't create robots. I mean, that's not that's not God. How could that accomplish His purpose if He just made us and just automatically determined that here's what we're going to be and here's how we're going to choose to save Him? He's just kind of punching out little widgets and robots that are going to do exactly what the manufacturer made them to do. So it's the very free will of man that makes this so beautiful because God wants people who choose to love Him, who choose to serve Him. That's what makes this a beautiful thing free will of man so let me just explore that with you for a minute now I'm not trying to deny the fact that you and I make decisions and have the freedom to do that absolutely we do but let me ask you this do you truly have free will before you're saved meaning can you choose can you choose to accept Christ can you choose that you're going to have the faith to believe. While you're thinking about that, listen to what the Scripture says about the condition of the lost. I'm just, I'm not going to look them up. I'm just going to state a few verses here. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 5. Those who are unsaved, they are dead in sin. They're dead. 
How many times do you have to kick a dead horse before it gets up and runs the race? How many times? Anybody guess? It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. It's dead. That is the clear teaching of Scripture. Those who are unsafe are dead in sin. Here's what else it says, Romans 5.10, that we were all enemies before being saved. We were enemies of God. And what had to happen is that God had to come and reconcile us. We didn't say, oh, I've decided I'm going to reconcile myself. No, we're dead. We're in sin and we're rebels against God. There is a radical issue in the human heart that is absolutely opposed to God being Lord of our life prior to salvation. We want to be the ones that call the shots. That is the sinful condition, and it is a condition of absolute slavery. We cannot do anything other than that. Romans 8, 7. Prior to salvation, our flesh, Romans 8, 7 says, is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Do you see the picture that's being painted here? Impossible, dead, absolutely unable to submit, enemy of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. The natural person, the unsaved person, is not able to understand spiritual things. Why? Because they're not spiritually alive. They're dead. They can't see the truth. They can't hear the truth. They can't understand it. They have a heart of stone, not a heart of flesh, a heart that is in rebellion against God. They are dead in their sin not alive spiritually. So here's the question. Can that person have a free will to choose God? No, you can't in that condition. You are enslaved. You are in bondage. You are dead and you can't kick yourself and get yourself up. Here's what has to happen. There has to have something that comes to you that infuses life. And who's the author of life? It's God. It's God. It's called regeneration in the Bible. God has to take the principle of life and come to a person dead in sin and infuse that life into them in regeneration. And then they wake up. Then they see. Then they hear and understand. Then they have a heart of flesh, not a heart of stone. Then they love God in the heart and that rebellion is removed and they want to do what God wants them to do. Do they struggle? Yes, they struggle because they have a body of flesh, but their spirit and their soul long for the right now because they're now alive. Now go to this illustration. I've said this before, but it is in Scripture there for, I believe, an incredible picture here. Jesus is standing in Bethany. He's outside the tomb of Lazarus. The stone is rolled across the tomb. Lazarus is laying on the stone-cold slab. He's wrapped up in grave clothes and spices. He's been there for days. His body is rotting on the stone-cold slab in the darkness. And Jesus shows up four days after his death, and he says, roll the stone away. And the mourners and the family and the friends say, Jesus, we better not crack the stone. It's going to be bad. It's going to stink. And Jesus says, roll the stone away. 
And they do. And then here's what Jesus does. He says, Lazarus, come forth. And when he sends the call, it is a call of life that goes and it infuses into Lazarus and he wakes up there laying there mummified on that slab and he says, I hear Jesus calling me. What in the world am I doing in here? How did I get in here? And he shuffles off the slab and he shuffles out of the tomb and Jesus says, unwrap the grave clothes and let him go. You see, what happened is an effectual call went out that gave life And then when Lazarus came alive, he heard the call and he responded. Now the argument is, well, man, I don't like that idea of the effectual call. That's robotic. No, it's not. No, it's not. Don't use the word then, effectual. Listen, if you're laying on the stone cold slab, wrapped up and mummified, and the stone is rolled open, and you can see a little bit of light through the cloth, and you hear Jesus calling you back out into the daylight, how many are getting up and going out? They all are. I promise you, they all are. Do they have a choice in it? Yes, they do, but they all go. That's the way it works. That's the way it works. You see, The free will of man prior to salvation. Yes, we have the right as free agents to make decisions, but none of us dead can make ourselves alive. None of us blind can make ourselves see. None of us deaf can make ourselves hear. None of us can take the heart of stone and put a heart of flesh and replace enmity with God with love for God. Only God can do that. Only God. So here's the real truth about the free will of man. You're only free once you're regenerated. And then once that regeneration happens by the miracle of God, then you are free to make the decision. And you have to make it, but you do make it. And you are saved then as you put your faith in Jesus Christ. That's the way it works. So the free will of man is not true in the sense that you can choose to come to Christ, you're dead. But when he regenerates you, then and only then can you choose. And is it really a choice that you make? Yes, it is a choice that you make and you do it because you want to do it. But listen, the will the change of the will, the change of the desire is something God did in you when he regenerated you. And that's why you do choose that path. Now one final statement here because I know where this is really tough and it's the toughest place for me too. I just, I want you to know that. When this is the toughest is when we're talking about a close loved one, when we're talking about a husband or a wife or a son or a daughter or a brother or a sister or a mother, or a father. And we're saved, and they're not. And we look at this doctrine of election, and we struggle with it. But remember, it's not a doctrine that is exclusionary. It is a doctrine that is inclusive. 
And it makes it possible, regardless of the life lived and the length of sin and the depths of sin, none of that can stop the person from getting saved that's elect because it's free and unconditional. But listen to this statement in Acts chapter 2. Just praying that God would just give me some additional insight here. And I believe he showed me this this week that I've never seen before. Oh, it just did great things for my heart. Acts chapter 2, 37 to 39. This is Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost. Thousands of people hear him preach his first sermon there. This is 50 days after Jesus has ascended. And those 3,000 hear him preach and say, what must we do to get saved? Listen, Acts 2, 37 to 39. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now watch this, verse 39. For the promise is for you and for your children. And for all who are afar off, for everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Do you see what Peter said there? He said to those 3,000 that were cut to the heart, that had been regenerated, that were longing to find out how to get saved. And Peter said, here's what you have to do. Repent and be baptized in Jesus' name. And you're going to be saved. And the promise is that you'll receive the Holy Spirit as proof of that. And then he said, and it's for your children too. It's for your children too. Oh man, that is an incredible statement to me. You see, the doctrine of election. I refuse to believe that my kids are not elect. I refuse to believe it. What I do is I pray for them. And I share Jesus with them. And I look for the day with anticipation that they are going to receive that promise. Acts chapter 2 verse 39 that I received. They are my children and I received it. And that promise is for my children as well. And so I pray and say, oh God, call them to yourself. See, I don't think God wants us looking at election in any way, saying, oh, exclusionary, exclusionary. No. It is a a doctrine that includes, it's a doctrine that chooses from eternity past. And if you're saved, it's for you and your children. Would you please stand? Father, oh, Lord, God, just take the word and let it do whatever you want it to do. Sovereign King, let it do what only you can do and send it forth to do for your glory. God, I pray, I pray for those here that are not saved. I I know it needs to happen. I can't do it. Absolutely not. 
What needs to happen is that the Spirit of God needs to send forth a regenerating call to wake them from death to life and help them to see who Jesus is, the very Son of God who died for their sins and rose to guarantee life eternal for those that put their faith in Him. I pray that You'd reveal that. And Lord, I pray for those that are saved here that have husbands and wives and sons and daughters and mothers and fathers, sisters and brothers that are unsaved. I pray that You would encourage them with this truth of the inclusive, unconditional, free nature of election and that they would pray and believe that the promise is for them as well. And share Jesus and look for the day, even if it's a week or a month or a year or a decade or a lifetime. Look for the day when the effectual that call goes out that wakes them up from death and gives them life and brings them to faith. Do it, Lord, I pray for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.